It is good you have come. Perhaps you can help me with a small problem. Well, I presume you wouldn't be still here if you didn't have a problem. It's a pretty handy gadget you have there. It serves its purpose. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to another installment of the IMMP Intermillennium Media Project podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And he took over last time, but now we're back for another routine expedition into 20th century media. You got back at me, Dad. <laughs> you found a way. I decided to take us in a direction with a movie that involved parallel little worlds, looping time travel, and a wide amount of theorization possible. And you decided that if this grabbed his attention, I'll throw something that has a t- potential to destroy him. <laughs> okay, then. Oh, wow. I was not ready for this time. I really thought I was going in on one sort of thing, and this turned into another. That's the the most fun that I have on this is uh, showing you things that I can get away with telling you as little as possible before you actually read them, uh, actually watch them, like um, watching Capricorn One uh, a year ago and just telling you, oh, it's about a mission to Mars. Oh boy! This time. We watched Land of the Lost, the 1974 1974 TV series, and its return to Sid and Marty Croft. Okay, I'm going to say I had immediate flashbacks. I had immediately tensed up and was fearful when I saw Sid and Marty Croft, (laughs) thanks to our previous encounters with the strange nesting worlds of the Crofts. I was ready to get through this and didn't expect it to go where it did. But then this decides to be, it looks like a kid's show on the outside. You get past that very cheesy, very catchy, way too catchy for its own good. Oh, goodness. Get it out of my head. Theme song. (laughs) And then you get into like, welcome to some hard sci-fi kids. Better learn parallel dimensions. What's going on? You survived Lidsville, which meant you earned Land of the Lost. And that's kind of how it was for kids in the 70s. Okay, if that's the alchemical transfer (laughs) we're doing here, I am okay with the exchange at this point. My goodness, Land of the Lost. But you're absolutely right. This is a stealth TV show. Because it looks like yet another Sid and Marty Croft um, TV show with some video composite work and... Lots of goofy costumes, sets that, you know, don't even try to look that realistic, but they do their job. Land of foam rocks. <laughs> and then it starts telling its story. The moment you hear the word pylon, which I'm also thinking you must construct additional pylons. But my goodness, <laughs> the moment there's a pylon in this show, stuff happens. My goodness. The premise for this show, it's pretty easy to summarize because they, just, they do it every single episode in the the opening song. Marshall, Will, and Holly on the routine expedition met the greatest earthquake ever known. Do we have? We do we ever learn the dad's name? Because they give yeah. him his. Oh, he's look, Rick Marshall. He's Rick Marshall. Because in the intro, they just call him Marshall, Will, and Holly. So it's Mr. He's, Marshall. He's I guess. the grown-up protagonist in an adventure show, so he gets to be known by his last name. So we know that they they are the three main characters. 
uh, they're on a routine expedition, so apparently they do this regularly. They are explorers, they are prepared, they are survivalists. I guess. guess it's really they- unclear to me why it's a, 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 a man and his teenage son and his 12-year-old daughter are rafting on a routine expedition. They don't bother explaining that. That's fine with me. They just exp- uh, they just make it clear this is something they do, as you say. The greatest earthquake ever known. So this means that it is seismolo- seismologically tracked and compared to is at a magnitude above any other thing they've seen, I guess. But, of course, our heroes won't know this because they got plunged a thousand feet below, although not really, thanks to other episodes we learn, and wind up in the land of the lost. Right. And the Land of the Lost appears at first to be the distant past, because it is essentially a combination of rainforest and semi-arid plateaus populated with dinosaurs and other prehistoric life forms. Yeah. So we've got dinosaurs. We've got some vaguely, like, proto-human yeah, kind of, you know, simian sort of semi-human creatures. Mm-hmm. Which, already, those are... And we've got dinosaurs from different eras. Because these are not dinosaurs that existed at the same time with each other. Uh, they, they're, they're things we'll find bones of next to each other, but they're not from the same uh, eras within the, the timeline of Earth. Yeah, let alone dinosaurs of that size being in the same place and time as hominids. Didn't happen. And then we also have lizard people of the Sleestacks. Sleestaka. Sleestaka. And various other creatures popping in for single episodes. And we're, we're, we're rushing into this because there's just so much here. Oh, we're, we're not moving too much. <laughs> in, in terms of how fast the show moves, we're not moving too fast. They were introducing, like, Sleestack ancient temples by the end of episode three. Now, this was Saturday morning TV when I was eight years old and already kind of a science fiction fan. Oh, goodness. So I I really w- was looking forward to this. When I first saw it, I thought, you know, yeah, it's another thing by those Lidsville guys. Everything looks kind of fakey, but it's on TV and it's one of the three things on TV and it's kind of science fiction-y. So I'll watch it. And then it just... I don't even, the words fail me. It just <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, turned my mind inside out. And there's a reason why, I realize after the fact, there's a reason, there's, there's an origin for why there's so much really thoughtful science fiction packed into this. And that's when you start to look at who created it and who wrote it. I don't know that he was ever credited with creation of this. It's so much of a, a Sid and Marty Croft production. But this was created, and the first season at least story edited, by David Gerald, who is a science fiction author. He's, a, I think, a Hugo and Nebula winner for some of his prose fiction. He is probably best known for writing for a science fiction TV series that we don't talk about on this podcast, including one of the most beloved episodes of the original run of that uh, TV series. Oh my goodness, I have the very, very simple and easy to make plush from that episode upstairs somewhere. Yeah, those are pretty easy to make. Yeah, those are really easy to make. They almost make themselves. And David Gerald created this, and I think put a lot of thought into the entire story of what this place was and what's really going on in the background. And then you look at who else wrote episodes in addition to the episodes that David Gerald wrote. And it's kind of a a who's who of a certain segment of science fiction writing in the 70s. I have a feeling that once David Gerald got to create this series, he just called on all of his friends from Science Fiction Writers of America and had them write episodes. (laughs) Here's the place. Toss me a script. (laughs) Boom. So we've got episodes by David Gerald. We've also got episodes by Larry Niven, Norman Spinrad. Oh, boy. Uh, ben Bova. I, ben Bova was one of those writers I had was already kind of aware of when I started seeing this because he wrote some juvenile science fiction that was really good. Uh, DC Fontana, also known as a writer for that other TV series we don't talk about. Theodore Sturgeon wrote a second season episode. I don't know if these names mean a lot to you, Ian, I, but any I, f- science fiction fans of a certain uh, age, 
these names are going to mean a lot. I got to admit, for, for you, this is a list of names you recognize and are excited by seeing. For me, this is a list of names I need to go Google later. Oh, yes. Because it, I'm coming at this from that opposite angle. For you, this was a, all of these people are in one place. And for me, it's, here's a curated list of people who can write stuff this cool. <laughs> and I'm excited by that aspect because I've not got, this is not the current churn of media I see. So these names, I will be able to find their stuff, but I have not seen it in my, you know, you know, flow of things that come across my proverbial desktop at the time. But now I'm going to make sure they wind up on that top. Oh, and there was also an episode written by Walter Koenig. Koenig or Koenig? Anyway, he was best known for playing the handsome, witty Russian bridge officer on a TV series that we don't talk about. Wow, we're not talking about a lot of stuff this episode, but <laughs> yeah. that's really cool because there's also a lot to talk about. But yeah, it's all of these people, and and they all they knew how to construct science fiction stories. They knew how to introduce the speculative elements very carefully and with great impact. And in my mind, remembering this for, again back when I was eight years old, watching this a half an hour episode every week, mostly. It seemed like this was this long saga, which took a long time to reveal all these amazing mysteries and storylines. And watching this again, what I was amazed by, and, and Mrs. Darling Wife as well, how quickly all of this happens, how it's like, oh, third episode, they've already introduced what's-his-name and this concept when we've learned this about the Land of the Lost. And it it really is very, very fast, especially when you're watching several several of them each night the way we have been. There's a, there's two different types of episodes in Land of the Lost. There are the sci-fi episodes and the dinosaur episodes. And we skipped a lot of dinosaur episodes because most of those are just problem of the day, don't get eaten kind of stories. They're a little less impactful, but they're still cool. Yeah, those are the kind of things that I sort of expected when this show first premiered. Oh, it's people trapped in dinosaur times, and they have to deal with living in dinosaur times. And yeah, there's enough filler of that kind. Maybe a quarter of every of each season is like that. Maybe a third. But, uh, but the rest of it is this sci-fi saga. And every episode seems to have read the previous episodes. There wasn't an episode that felt... Re like it went back a step at any point. Every episode we saw felt like it actually was building off every episode that came before. If it was as simple as, and it it was it was not just in like it wasn't that they were all a continuing narrative. There was something of an episodic reset every time. They always wound up back at their cave. They learned something, but weren't out of the woods yet or the jungle. Or you get what I mean. But if they noticed a thing last episode about how the Land of the Lost works, they knew that in the next episode. And they would sometimes rely on that fact or have him or maybe it would come up an episode or two later. But they'll have talked about the fact that they checked that and did some confirmation and, you know, were able to confirm that that's how something worked to some extent, if they could. And. That was impressive. There was this scientific method to the way the characters approached stuff, and there was this narrative consistency I don't expect in a show unless it's one of the binge-intended modern shows from a streaming service I see nowadays. I don't ex I Modern shows on broadcast television don't have this level of self-acknowledgement and build, and that's amazing that this show had it. it this had that momentum, that moving energy. And I think that is a credit to the writing. I think uh, it is a credit you know, to all the, the pool of writers they used. I think it's very much a credit to David Gerald as story editor. I get the impression he kept very careful control over uh, a very detailed story Bible that knew what elements had to be introduced in what order and at what pace. And it worked extremely well. My goodness. And that's kind of how they're able to move as quickly as they are, because they don't have to bother reteaching stuff in the same way or relearning the same thing. 
they kind of expect you to be able to catch on to something if you didn't see last episode or see last episode and then come here. There's a degree to which they had to deal with the fact that it being in you know the previous CR days, you couldn't assume that everybody had seen every episode. So every episode had to stand on its own to some extent. You had to be able to watch it and at least follow it as an adventure story. And I think they, they succeed on that. You could you could pick any any episode out of the first two seasons and just based upon the, the intro song which tells you where you are and who these people are and and just then following the story. Yeah, it's a it's a good twenty two minute adventure. But if you do follow episode after episode, you get such a bigger story. You wind up with this large story about a world with ruins and the slea stacks that live beneath them, these aggressive lizard men. And the question of a world that seems smaller, wait, no, it loops upon itself. This isn't some hollow earth or time travel. This is a pocket dimension run via machines and full of a gathering of creatures, not only from within itself, but from across a universe that seems way bigger than we ever could have picture right somebody with extremely high technology created this as a self-contained environment filled with creatures and architecture and all kinds of things from from many many different places and as i describe this i realize i'm surprised they don't need an e-ticket to get into some of the places they are <laughs> maybe this was a theme park from some super advanced civilization Who okay we're, we're 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 pulling out the thief the uh, IMMP fan theory board and adding one to the <laughs> list. I think we're going to generate a couple during the course of this episode because this is what this show does. It is stacks and stacks and slee stacks of mysteries all <laughs> upon each other. So let's talk about some of the mysteries that are revealed. Oh, yeah, spoilers for Land of the Lost. Um, you may it, it's old enough that spoilers might be significant. On the other hand, it is many decades old, so you know there's a spoiler statute of limitations here, but there are spoilers. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the things that are revealed. You mentioned the fact that it is a, it's a pocket universe. And they discover that in a, as you say, a very scientifically minded way. They realize we need to, we can't just stay where we are because there's no way out or home or to anything else. So we need to move. And Rick says, we'll follow, we've got this river here. We'll follow the river. Eventually, it's going to lead to an ocean, and if anybody's building anything around here, people tend to build things near oceans or and near rivers. So we'll at least get somewhere that might be useful, and if anybody is around, we will find them. And they follow the river, and it doesn't lead them to an ocean. It leads them back to the start of their own river. They follow it through a cave down into a an underground area, which means sleeve stack episode, and then back. Also, I'm going to just pull back for one moment. I'd like to give a shout out and thanks to They Might Be Giants for using sleeve stack as a term for, for an antagonist in one of their songs. And that's the first place I'd heard the phrase, but it really actually helped me catch on to the idea quick. So like, go listen to Cloisonne by they might be giants. It's a weird, good song. But anyway, for a moment, when you started citing, they might be giants. I thought you were going to talk about your racist friend <laughs> because while they're following this river, they do meet a, a Confederate artillery soldier who is also at some point trapped in the land of the lost. And you know, the less said about him, the better he is kind of, Adult brained and he's been living in a cave and living on shrooms and and uh, making his own gunpowder for his tank. Oh, excuse me, his uh, his cannon, which he also has there. He doesn't make it by from the, through the end of the episode, if I remember, does he? They they he decides to go back to his cave and his beloved cannon, and they say, "Yeah, follow the river back that way." And that's the last we see of him. I just assumed he blew himself up with all of the stuff. He was useful to explain the fact that there are crystals, and that's a whole thing we'll talk about in just a moment. But he's a very he, he's intentionally made a, to be pointed out as a, a a fool and a danger. Yes, 
but so you know he he is one of the, and he's also the first evidence they get that other people from Earth do find their way in here, but not at the same time, not at the same time, and not from the same time. It does bug me that Rick spends the longest time assuming this guy is just crazy because there's no way he's really a Confederate soldier because there's no way he's really over a hundred years old without realizing time is doing weird things here. Don't assume that he is from the same time you are just because he's from the same planet you are. Wait a minute. Okay, I'm going to put another thing on the theory board for a moment. Enoch, the sleestack who's smart enough to actually have proper conversations, shows up after that episode, correct? Yes, I believe that's and the right. end of season one says that things require them to be even. So no creature can leave unless another one returns. So does that mean that if the crazy Confederate guy blew himself up, as is pretty much inevitable by his by his methodology, is he the thing that Enoch came in to replace since there's now a void within within the the balance of the Land of the Lost, which will allow Enoch to arrive? Sure, I'll buy that. I'm absolutely okay to trade <laughs> Enoch, who's really cool, for that crazy lunatic. Yeah. Yeah, Enoch, the um, the, the, the Sleestack from another time, or Altrucian, I think, there. Yeah, he calls himself Altrucian. He um he's not necessarily a good guy, but he's at least interesting. Yeah, he's he's mu- he's a much better foil character. Yeah, but you see, we're jumping ahead again. Yeah. <laughs> what, what the the whole river episode, which introduced the Confederate guy, we only see once. That shows us that this is a a pocket universe that's small enough to essentially circumnavigate in a few days of hiking along a river. That's so it's not that big. And the moment that the pocket universe was established, that's when I turned to you and just glared you down for the Donnie Darko connection. <laughs> I was not ready to have here. Yep. No coincidence. Oh, boy. And yet it's this small pocket universe and it's big enough to have sunrises and sunsets and three moons. So it at least give the, gives the appearance of being a complete world with a complete ecosystem and so on. So it is we learn more and more. It is finely tuned and carefully constructed, but not necessarily well-maintained anymore. No, it is automated by the pylons of various different types with various different functions. Some float in the sky, some randomly appear at different locations across the map. Some are static and fixed. They can open up. And they have controls and mechanisms inside of different types with different functions, but each of them seems to play some part in how the Land of the Lost works. I mean, you know the pylons, there's something weird going on with space-time there because they are these relatively small, booth-like, truncated pyramids, which are which which you can open with these strange keys. The doors just disappear and reappear. But they're bigger on the... Uh, on the inside than they are on the outside. Every single pylon contains an otherwise sparsely decorated soundstage within itself. It's impressive <laughs> technology. It's completely made out of low budget and jump cuts, but it's great. It's, it is terrific. And they've got these tables with the crystalline matrices on them. That I kind of wanted things. one of those tables. I want one of those with a glass top. Wouldn't that be great? That would be so great. I might have to make that. <laughs> Another project for item crafting. Oh, no. Yeah, I've got, I've, got, I've got so many projects and this is adding to it. But yeah, yeah, I might make one of those tables. So we've got the, the fact that it's a pocket universe. We've got the pylons that control the weather and the environment and later on we learn they they actually can control these time portals and doorways into other dimensions and times we learn that these slee stacks these aggressive people underneath were the altrucians not in a they will grow uh, they were not will become enoch thinks he's he's landed in his past no turns out he landed in his future they completely apocalypse to themselves the ruins are their own cities and this is a problem he has to go back and fix. So a few years later, when I learn about the band Devo, I immediately hear about their concepts and think, oh, yeah, devolution. It's like the uh, the Altrucians and the Sleestacks. <laughs> you see, it's this primed me for so much that that came later. Oh, absolutely. My goodness. I hadn't considered that part. 
<laughs> okay. See, I, I kept doing this. Every time we'd watch, I'd like sit there and they'd introduce a new concept and I'd just like zone for a moment, realizing how that nested in with everything else we'd learned. And then I like have conniptions and have to remind myself kids show and then I'd be back into it because this is all like the best crash course for kids ever at some of these sci-fi things I love. Oh my goodness. This is my sort of show because I love this sort of like concept and pick it apart and like theoretical options and world building. The marshals got on my nerves at times. They are, I'll be very honest. They are plot smart. There are times when they are very clever, and there are times when Rick Marshall is going, oh, I wonder where this crossbow bolt came from, literally when a minute ago he fired a crossbow into a wall, and I'm like, oh, come on. And that's, I think, the flaw in this show, and the biggest weaknesses in this show, is that the dialogue and the acting don't live up to and don't mesh with the high-concept science fiction of the story it's telling. It's still, and I can even get past the fact that some of the sets are cheesy and the fake plants and things like that, but the acting and the dialogue, they are, they're better than Lidsville, <laughs> but they're Bar not, set. They're, yeah, they're not that far advanced from other Sid and Marty Croft things. It's very broad, very, I think it was considered kid-friendly and that it's easy to understand everybody's emotions at any given time and you essentially you're following this story and then someone says something and every sense of nuance and subtlety goes away and it was kind of jarring at least rewatching it it seemed very jarring maybe i didn't notice that when i was a kid because i don't remember noticing it from what i've now seen of sid and marty croft productions they are great at getting something into existence they are, they don't shy away from concepts and that can be a, be a detriment and a positive, because they will make it happen. And that means that it will be there, it will be approachable, because it will have a styling that is able to draw people in. I've seen their productions now, I've, I've looked at some of their stuff that is not just from that this era, but also later things that they've worked on. And they they kind of keep with the times. They they follow the baseline in a you can come to a Sid and Murray Croft production and it's not going to lose you. And the fact that they're willing to go with whatever story and concept there means that these things get a chance to exist. There's was weird stuff in Lidsville, and I don't think all of it meshed well. But the fact that that stuff got to be presented is something. And in something like The Land of the Lost, where the concept is so grand... There are some creation and studios that would have burned a whole lot of budget and not gotten a lot deeper than this did, and there are some that would have never even touched it, afraid that it was too out there. The Croft production allowed this to happen, and that at least means the ideas can be looked at and discussed and you can go to it, and that's, that's a very positive thing for it. And that's a great point. I mean, the, the Crofts were really good at getting kids' television produced, getting things greenlit, getting things produced and keeping them on production at a, on a budget. It's going to be a very weird comparison, but there's something about the Crofts production that reminds me of Games Workshop. Because Games Workshop will license their things to a wide variety. There's a lot of ways to get into their stuff if you want to. And they've got intriguing designs on a variety of things, so you can find one of them that interests you. And that is great for any sort of people making stories, making designs. Being able to be found is important. And similarly, between both Games Workshop stories and Sid Minecraft stories, once you get a little bit into them, you realize, oh my goodness, what am I looking at? But that's a whole side issue. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, I, I think I just called Lidsville and Land of the Lost Grimdark. I think you did. I think I did. Okay. <laughs> I'll go with that. I could see a, a, a well, I guess they've, they've gone out of that era, but there was a time when I could have seen a Sci-Fi Channel grim reimagining of Lidsville, couldn't you? I kind of would if <laughs> I would have wanted the Land of the Lost to be the vessel in which you could 
dabble in the other Croft worlds as other places that wound up connecting for a moment. Well, that's, yeah. They kind of do that, though. They do. They they confirm that this is not just a question of time. It connects lots of different places, apparently, possibly lots of different parallel universes. So, yeah, these pylons can control time portals. Who's to say a time portal couldn't look like a hat? Or a ring. Oh, or goodness. Or a ring. Who's to say that this is this is not the center of the Sid and Marty Croft multiverse? What are you doing, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving you something to think about for the next six months. Six years. <laughs> Sixty years. What are you doing to me? <laughs> you see, it's, there's there's a lot here hidden in, and like every once in a while, you would just like stare at me dumbstruck, and I would say, "Kids show." Yeah, because <laughs> this not only the complexity, sometimes the weight of some of the things they were dealing with. Pardon, we really would not have expected in a kids show. We are not as far in as I expected to have to discuss, but we've got to discuss the final episode of season one. Well, let's talk about the the story arc of season one. Okay. We've talked about a bunch of the components. They're in this land, which they refer to as the land of the lost, I guess because they're lost. And we learn that there are the Slee Stacks, and then we learn that there's this Enoch who is a Slee Stack ancestor who's trapped in this world as well. He is you know, knowledgeable has knowledge of high technology, even though he has a limit to what he has access to here. And he's trying to get back to his own time. And he sees it as time, and maybe it is, that he's looking to get back to the past, so that possibly so that he can prevent the Slee Stacks from devolving into what they become. And one of the ongoing conflicts is between Enoch and the Marshals, in that he is putting together the crystals and the pieces that he needs to open and control a time portal so he can get back to where he came from. And they realize, that's what we need to get back to where we come from. And they're actually kind of rotten at some points. Yeah, they, they, really, they, they, they fight dirty. Yeah, they are not necessarily noble protagonists in attempting to get access to this technology that Enoch is putting together. They're willing to steal it from him and use it to get home, even if it means he's stranded. But that's kind of back and forth. And like you say, there are dino episodes. There are other episodes in which we learn some more of these details about the pylons and the fact that they can open up portals to other places and they can control the weather and things like that. At one point, another person from Earth shows up and then uh, is able to escape, though the Marshals are not. He's from Earth's future compared to the Marshals. Oh, that's right. He's from like their 1990s or something. So they've at least got someone who's theoretically made it back, but in the future, who could relay information. So maybe there's a rescue attempt outside that's unknown and things like that. Yeah, that that they that does really confirm that time is not passing at the same rate or in the same way on either side of the portal. Either the portals are opening at random points in space-time, or time is just operating more slowly in the Land of the Lost than it does in the, the regular world. And definitely our different marshals are taking different roles within their group. Uh, Rick is very much... Uh, the survivalist he's doing a lot more of the setup and the planning he's not only as the father but also the architect of how they're going to build their house their cave house and things like that yeah there and there's very much a nuclear family sense of hierarchy apparently their mom passed away sometime before the routine expedition but you know it's the dad and then there's the older oldest son and then there's the little girl and will is definitely the explorer He's the one who wants to go out and check new areas, and once they learn it's circular, he's a little more willing to go out to a high point to get recon and come back, because if we can map this place, we've got an idea of where we're, of what we're doing, and if they need to get somewhere, he knows a path to places most often. And then Holly's the one naming all the creatures and apparently tracking where they go sometimes. And keeping track of where different kinds of plants grow and mm -hmm. what's edible and what's not. And interacting and slowly forming communication with the uh, the hominids there. Yeah, the Paku, the Pakuni. Pakuni. And that, like, they each take these roles very quickly, but they take these roles. And so you also get to see, you know, an episode will not have a focus character, but it'll have a... 
a scenario that one of them has the right stats for. Yeah, and that's, I think, a staple of kids' TV at the time. Very clearly drawn personality types. It's easy to understand. And again, you might be coming into this in episode four, having never seen any of it previously. You need to understand instantly who is who and what are they like and what decisions are they likely to make. So that that lacks subtlety, but it works. Mm-hmm. It's effective. So they have this back and forth as they're learning more about the world and as Enoch is trying to put together his technology while keeping himself uh, protected from the Slee stack, although he can kind of control them with his mind control abilities. And the marshals are trying to stay safe from the dinosaurs and from the Slee stacks, etc. But then at the end of season one, Enoch has gotten everything together and he can open and control a time doorway. And this is where it goes crazy, in my opinion. Because not only does it does the Land of the Lost loop geographically, we learn that it's secular in terms of fate and determinism and reality. Because all Enoch's door can do is show him the opening of, the, of every single episode of the show which is Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition falling down a, a thousand feet below every time. He doesn't get the music. He doesn't get the music. <laughs> but well, he, it would be hilarious if he would. did get the music. Yes. But he does just see them on the river in their raft. Earthquake happens. They plunge down into the depths. And then it starts over. And he calls them over to show them this. Because he figures out what's going on. They shouldn't be there in the Land of the Lost. And the fact that they are is essentially blocking whatever normal causality allows these time doorways to work. So as long as they are there in the Land of the Lost, the time doorways cannot work. And he can't get home. Which means that they need to leave. They have to leave. But they can't, because that would leave three empty slots in the Land of the Lost. And somebody recognizes something. I think it's Holly who, watching herself and her dad and, and Will plunge down this, uh, this sudden waterfall through the time doorway, she realizes, wait, there isn't the mist at the bottom that represented the time doorway that we fell through and that we ended up in the Land of the Lost. There's nothing down at the bottom there except a bunch of jagged rocks. Congratulations, Enoch. You have a... A constant feed of parallel dimensions of the marshals falling to their death on loop. <laughs> and the right. marshals realize that we died, but then it just resets. And yet once instead of dying, we ended up here. Even scarier. It's not that they this is this isn't just a loop then. This is watching parallel versions of them die in succession. I will remind us, audience, as I had to be reminded and remind myself kids show <laughs> this kids show just dealt with existential death on a multiversal scale yeah, kids this is yay pretty dark what in the world <laughs> i had to ask us to pause that episode i was losing my mind <laughs> it's happening again what in the world that episode is crazy this is the sort of stuff i expect to sit down to strange Modern sci-fi movies usually set on a space station. Why are they always set on a space station? This is the sort of stuff I love, but I didn't expect to find it here. Now, the good news is, as a solution to this, they have to get out of the Land of the Lost. So they're able to use Enoch's time doorway to get back to somewhere in California, apparently. And yet the three who were trapped in this loop, plunging down the waterfall, end up going through the time portal into the Land of the Lost, just like at the beginning of the series. Hey, writers, do you want to not have to have a big twist and keep your uh, status quo for season two, but still have your characters reach a fulfilling conclusion? A time loop allows them to literally not remember anything of season one and start from square one. <laughs> so your audience goes from following along and learning the secrets to watching an entire group relearn the secrets and the audience goes, wait, something changed. 
it's so exciting. <laughs> so they can have as much continuity as, continuity as they want, and they can excuse any lack of continuity they have, and they keep going. Now, at the beginning of season two, it everything looks kind of the way it was, and looks like they're as acclimated to their new home in the Land of the Lost as they were towards the end of season one. But there is this nagging sense of, these aren't the same Marshall, Will, and Holly, are they? And there's a little bit of something. Their cave is already got some of the dugout sections and all these things that the first ones did. There's a little bit of iterative modification over time. Yeah. If, if, they, tread, if they tread a path on cycle one, the path is lower in cycle two. Oh, so you're saying that even though they have not experienced the Land of the Lost previously, the Land of the Lost has experienced them. Some of the some of the things I thought that was the case. There were crystals gathered together, like the mining operations the first round did. The cave was already laid out, and then was even more so later in a way that implies they didn't have to take the time to redo it. Oh, now I always just assumed that the TV show brought us into season two having skipped all of the doing and learning that happened in season one so we could move forward. But you're saying that they got to a cave and it's, oh, this is remarkably clean and organized. And yeah. wait, that, um, that, that spare pair of socks looks a lot like mine. And where did it come from? <laughs> hey, kids, I, we're going we're gonna to need to build a fire for the night. I found a divot. We can use <laughs> this one. It's like, that was the fire pit you dug last time. You're looking at it as we skipped the we skipped the setup. I'm looking at it as uh, that one episode of uh, Mr. Spacetime where uh, Peter Capaldi punched through Diamond by living a thousand thousand lives. <laughs> That's right. I'm looking at that one, going <gasps> that. Uh, okay, I, I can I can go with that. I um, Very I guess boring. it depends on whether you think that what was happening at the end of season one with the time portal means that the the Marshall, Will, and Holly that they watch going down the, the falls are arriving in the Land of the Lost at the same time that they did previously, that it's back in time. Mm -hmm. Or is it now, because now is when we triggered the portal to let them come here instead of dying? We, I, can't, we can't even be sure that season two opens with iteration two. No, we, we don't know. It could be iteration 22. For all we know, there could have been all these other sets of of them that have already gone through the cycle and found a door of some form, and in doing so, condemned another set of Marshall, Will, and Holly to live in the land of the lost. I guess. That may be. <laughs> I'm watching now I'm wondering, have they done this so that they can protect Madoka so she can save the world from... Uh all Fergus knocked. <laughs> oh, oh goodness! We're throwing more stuff I'm a fan <laughs> of into this mix. Okay, you can see this theme of re of iterative time travel of this sort. You know, you can throw in uh, uh, Groundhog Day and countless things. This is certainly the first example of that that I ever experienced. Uh, you know, watching this as an eight year old. But yeah, it's it's a powerful setup. Absolutely. And throwing this into this kid's show is throwing it into a kid's show that has such obvious foam rocks and rubber dinosaurs is so much fun, actually. The fact that it gets it's so simple in setup means that you almost feel like you could go out and recreate a section of it just to test a theory if you really wanted to. <laughs> There's something so tangible about it because it's not. They they will say, you know, this look this feels so cold and smooth, and what is this even made out of? But I'm just looking at it and saying, that, that, that's styrofoam. <laughs> that's styrofoam and latex paint. I can make that. I know what that feels like. It is actually a little colder than you'd think. But good acting. That's an, That was actually a really good piece of acting. You didn't do it a moment ago, but still, it's like, it drew me in. The simplicity is actually appealing. And that's what I think makes this a good stealth show, in that... It's not, you'd have never heard of it before, and I put it on, and you're immediately saying, wow, this looks cool. It was, I put it on, it's, oh, it's a kid's show with rubber dinosaurs. Oh, okay. And then you start noticing what they're talking about. It's like, 
wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's a very much a double-take show in that sense. Oh, absolutely. So we continue with, with more of this, and I would say that season two doesn't have quite as much of a beginning-to-end story arc, and we watched less of season two, but season two does introduce other sci-fi concepts, like these aliens who have come to the Land of the Lost in some kind of a spaceship, and they have replicating and telepathic and empathic powers, and they wind up interacting with the Marshals a few times over the course of some of the episodes in season two. So there's more sci-fi adventure, less big, dramatic sci-fi concept story arc. And and there's a little bit more, it's going to sound funny, marshalling of forces, because season two, now that they've established some of the things that can happen in the Land of the Lost, we see them experimenting with these, there's multiple different types of colored crystals all throughout the Land of the Lost that react to each other. So we see them not very safely, mind you, but we see them experimenting with different combinations and building small mechanisms to use these, recreating some modern things we know. They've got light sources so they can do more at night and such with some of these crystals. They've got security systems built. They, in theory, find out some very powerful tools that these can be used. So we see discovery in season one, and we see implementation and innovation in season two with that there's a little bit more experimenting with combining what happens if we're using crystals alongside something in a pylon in a new ways and we suddenly suddenly season two marshals have some of the tech that enoch was leveraging in season one at their disposal it becomes part of their arsenal and then season three apparently they figured out how how to create um log cabin aesthetic ikea because suddenly they're cave is much better furnished yeah we didn't watch i think we only watched one episode of season three but season three was this is popular enough let's keep it going rather than we have more story to tell one of the actors leaves very suddenly yeah rick marshall um leaves in a way that we can see him leaving but we never have to see his face i think that's because the actor just didn't come back for any of uh of season two uh three but Will and Holly's Uncle Jack shows up because he was out looking for Marshall, Will, and Holly and uh, got stuck in an earthquake and a time portal and wound up uh, there. At least he, uh, he is not the kind of wilderness survival kind of guy that uh, Rick Marshall was. But Jack Marshall is more of a, um, he's, he's an engineer and I can fix up just about anything, he says. And sure yeah. enough, it seems like he can. He, he immediately fixes a Sleestack temple. It's like, I, I can fix about anything. Yeah, you can. This isn't even Earth design. <laughs> well, I don't know. Gravity and physics seem to, well, basic to, mechanical engineering. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say physics works the same way, but... Basic mechanical engineering principles seem to be reliable in the Land of the Lost oh, most yeah. of the time. We didn't see a lot, but then they're continuing that momentum. They're continuing that story, but they're adding new things. The Paku have learned more communication over time, which definitely makes it seem like the Land of the Lost is cycling marshals, but keeping them. Now, you really got into this in that I see that happening in season three and thought, you know, they got kind of lazy. It was interesting to see them sort of teach a few words of English to the Paku and learn some of the Paku language uh, in turn. And that's one another thing Holly was good at. She learned more Paku language than anybody else did. But then in season three, I'm thinking, you know, Chaka could probably do okay on the verbal SATs. He's not learned enough English. Mm-hmm. I thought that was lazy writing. You immediately thought, okay, how do we explain this given what we've learned about this universe and you came up with a very plausible idea well how does holly how does this iteration of holly know so well the paku have learned how to teach their language why do the paku <laughs> have so much more language than they used to they've been picking up english and slowly developing their linguistic skills through multiple iterations that have to try to make first contact over and over so they've learned english like bill murray learned piano in uh Groundhog Day. Absolutely. <laughs> so you think that at some point the the Paku are meeting Marshall, Will, and Holly and thinking, here we go again. They're back. Let's hold on that. <laughs> okay. But 
there, I mean, there's still even in the, it shows you that even in these later seasons, when they've established so much, there's a lot of room to think. And there's a lot of room to question, and there's a lot of puzzles and mystery still built into this system and still being generated. That's what makes it fun. That's what makes this fun. You will never get an episode that that explains more than it questions. And I'm loving that fact. Oh, that's a great point. You're right. We learn a lot, and every time we learn something, we get at least two more questions. Mm-hmm. And that means that, and that actually kind of keeps that that drive to watch another episode. We watched a lot more of this than I expected when we first sat down, just because it's like, no, there's, there's more, there's more. Ooh, yay. Ah. I knew there was a certain amount we would have to watch because we would have to learn about it being a closed loop universe. And we would have to learn about um, uh, Enoch and the fact that he was not a descendant of the Slee Stacks. He was an an ancestor of the Slee Stacks and Mrs. Darling wife was indispensable and, Reminding me of, of what were the key points that had to be covered. That was all covered, as I said, much more quickly in the first season than I realized. And yet then there was so much more than I remembered there being that we kept watching. You, you, get, you, get, to, you get to meet and, and establish a lot of Enoch and his sassy three-clawed hand gestures very quickly. <laughs> so, yeah, the actor who plays Enoch is... He's got, he, these are not great costumes. These are, are Sid and Marty Croft rubber costumes with these, as you say, these kind of three-clawed hands. The guy who plays Enoch really goes for it, comes up with these amazing gestures that are just yeah. awesome. Yeah, hold up your hand, put up, put your thumb out, then put your your middle and your pointer finger together, and then put your ring and your pinky finger together. And then wonder why that looks familiar. But now just try to gesture like that. And wrap them in semi-pointy claws. Yeah. But, like, do that and then talk animatedly with your hands. Like, gesture to your friend over there and kind of look like you're, you know, DJing a party every time you try to explain <laughs> your own computer to someone. It's really fun. Yeah, I he's think expressive. He, <laughs> I think you were observing he's he's kind of doing a Wu-Tang Clan thing. And you're right. <laughs> You were right. He had some moves. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we've made sense of this, or at least we've conveyed the the components of it that have, have drawn us in. Have we, have we incoherently rambled a large number of very deep concepts and left an audience wondering what's going on and full of questions more than they came in with? We're giving you a pretty good example of the show. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> and I wish I could say this show is one you could easily go out and get. It's hard to find sometimes, but it's worth looking for. There is a DVD set out there, but it's it's one of these things that kind of comes and goes like a time portal from various <laughs> listings. So It's not in print, if I recall correctly, but it is available out there on the market some places. Yeah, and you've got to be careful because there are other versions. Well, I think we're getting close then to our final questions. Mm-hmm. So let's um, let's keep it organized and start with TV series, binge or no binge? Binge, 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 <laughs> binge, 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 binge. Oh my goodness, I'm going to wind up rewatching and watching this entire series. I, I honestly did not expect that when I started introducing you to this. I thought you were going to say, wow, well, this is interesting and it was ambitious for a kid's show. I did not expect you to get as into it as you have. And But now that I've watched it again with you, and again, coming back to this after decades of never seeing it, uh, I understand why. I decided to start looking up this show online when we started watching, and I realized what this was to me. And I found half-filled-in wiki articles. I found a surprisingly small amount of fan fiction, and half of it is people using it as a forum to try to solve the answers and questions. <laughs> you presented me with this, and I found a resource-rich land full of ruins, half-buried. <laughs> I found a land of the lost of a land of the lost community, and I'm going to go try to dig up what I can— because my goodness, this is my sort of thing. And if you're the sort of person who loves this, I'm going to sit and theorize for hours. I'm going to 
I want to have a show I can go to and pluck individual concepts out of for my own projects and ideas, because every single one is large enough to power its own story on its own. My goodness, this is full of it. I have so many note pages of things I'm going to subject D&D groups to, just out of ep- <laughs> like episodes of this are turning into entire multi, multi-session campaigns, because it's so fruitful. Well, that is really cool. Now, I don't know that I'm going to move there the way Ian is, but yeah, binge. If you get a few episodes into this, either it won't be for you or you will just not want to stop watching it. So I think we're agreed on that. And that brings up what is often the more difficult question and the more complicated question, and that is revive, reboot, or rest in peace. So we've got to kind of acknowledge the uh, dinosaurs in the room. There are two reboots. There are. There is a 1991 series that lasted for a little bit on Nickelodeon, which is, in fact, the most 90s thing ever. I watched part of one episode, and I got distinct Power Rangers flashbacks in a way I wasn't ready for on that, and it didn't quite have the same bite as the original, but it exists. And I think you said earlier, this, the, the Crofts are very good at being integrated into their time and being of their time. And just as the, the 1974 Land of the Lost was very 70s, the 1991 Land of the Lost was very 90s. It was somehow, in 91, more 90s than most of the rest of the 90s stayed. <laughs> Maybe that helped create the 90s the way that Buck Rogers created the 80s. It might. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. actually. And in that 91 version, the family was not named the Marshalls, were they? No, they weren't. What were they named, Ian? They were named the Porters. They were. It was the Porter family. Oh, goodness. <laughs> And, None uh, of them were named Matt or Ian, though. <laughs> no. But yeah, the production values were you know, 20 years advanced from what they were in the early 70s. The music, very 90s, as opposed to these kind of 70s bluegrass that we get in the original series. Yeah. And then, of course, there was a 2009 movie, which, in a very 2009 move, starred Will Ferrell and was a Will Ferrell movie with a brand association. And was totally a, a comedy take on this whole thing, as opposed to both of the others at least being serious within their target market. Mm-hmm. And I haven't, apart from, again, a, par, a portion of an episode of the 90s version, I haven't seen any more of the 90s version, haven't seen the movie. I can't say I feel compelled to do so, but uh, you're right. We have to acknowledge that they are out there. And it also is an example, uh, evidence of the fact that this idea is interesting enough that, you know, every 20 years or so, it comes back. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a cycle. It is a thing that has enough to, to do so. And that means that how, how would it or should it, if it should? You want to go first on this? I don't know. I've kind of been avoiding this question because it is, is a complicated one. On the one hand, I, I don't need a reboot i think there will be more reboots i think that you know, like i say it's a powerful enough concept i'm not looking for one i don't know that uh um it's needed i'd rather see it influence newer things than be rebooted in its own right revival there are ways in which a revival would be interesting if only because there are so many loose ends that I think could be picked up on. I don't remember what happens later in season three, but at the beginning of season three, Rick Marshall winds up going back to Earth without his kids. Yeah. What is life going to be like for Rick Marshall, and what is he going to spend the rest of his life doing? I think he's going to start studying a lot of physics and exploring strange places and trying desperately to get back to the land of the lost. I'm absolutely with you. I want something that looks like a reboot at first. I want something that implies a routine expedition that sends these people to this place. And give us that. Give us a Netflix series. 
get the people who did that uh, Lost in Space series to do A Land of the Lost. It'd be fun. But then, let us have the question of why was it a routine expedition? Because maybe a man arrived before he left and started a group, knowing that he'd have to send himself and his kids to complete a cycle or break time. Oh, I, oh, what wow. If, what if there's a twist halfway through a series where you run into a Paku nation who've harnessed a bunch of these pylons and built a society and are on their way up towards what Enoch's society was when he left because they've watched marshals arrive and they've picked up things over time and they become a force that is not being affected by, but maybe is slowly gaining control of this land. Because this is multiple cycles later. So in Earth, you've got this cult that is essentially run by Rick Marshall, who returned decades before he left, and he's kind of responsible for getting these expeditions going and discovering the Land of the Lost. Meanwhile, in the Land of the Lost, you have a Paku Empire growing. Mm -hmm. Who's fighting... And deal and control and maybe even gaining control of these slee stacks who have taken more time and either devolved further or been pulled back towards where they were over time. They've watched uh they've watched Joe Marshall revive some of their engineering and maybe they're doing better now. But then they left and another group came in and they've done things. And I want to see a land of the lost that makes you think. We're going to go through the whole steps again and then throws us of what's been what is it like if you tur- if you you know turn this cycle on and leave it running for all this time. I like that. Okay, I'm sold now. <laughs> I want to see that stealth revival. Yeah, that that starts out as a reboot. And a show that a show that looked to me like it had continuity I would not expect outside of something that is designed for binge-watching streaming is perfect for a binge-watching streaming formatting now. They could do this. I want them to do this. Please. Well, one thing is absolutely certain. Neither of us is saying rest in peace. No. And that's because there's just too much here to put that we don't want to put it down. And you you were stating before the fact that if, a, like, and I was stating in some of the stuff, there are pieces of this that could power other stories oh, that sure. can become entire narratives on their own so even if this never gets these ideas this is still something that is influential and has a potential to inspire so many other things so in some ways it always it has plenty of other stories that are carrying on parts of how this thing ran but seeing all of these gears meshed and running in one was so fun and you observed something early on when we were starting to get to some of these strange mysteries about the place in terms of what this reminded you of and you know you want a a, a more recent tv series that um that this owes that owes something to this just get rid of the first three words yeah this like the this is all of what I hoped Lost would stay, and yes. Lost lost its way over time. This kept it going. But the, yeah, this show that seems like it's going to be something simple and straightforward, and then there are all these amazing, weird mysteries about what is this place? What is it like? What are its rules? How did we get here? If somebody has to leave, do they want to have left, and how do they get back if they want to, and why? There's so much going on. I hadn't even considered what happens if you try to reboot the land of the lost in a post the creation of the modern ARG world. Oh goodness. <laughs> I've fallen down that rabbit hole before. <laughs> before this airs, I've got to see if marshallexpeditions.com is uh, is taken. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I All love right. it. So, I think we've got our answers. I think we do. I, I, I don't think we have watched um, The Last of the Land of the Lost that we'll be watching. But this is, is one of those shows that from the beginning of this podcast, I knew we were going to have to watch it. I knew I was going to have to introduce this to you. I'm pleased at the timing of you picking Donnie Darko for last episode. 
uh, allowing us to lead straight into this. I was not ready for this to have a connection, but I'm so excited that it did. Well, I'm glad for that. And I'm glad that uh, that you folks uh, have uh, downloaded this and listened to it. Thanks again for uh, for that. We really appreciate that support. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. And in the meantime, Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as Item Crafting. I can be found on Twitch as Item Crafting Live. And I can be found on YouTube as Item Crafting. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, by Matthew Porter. You can find me on Twitch as by Matthew Porter, especially if you like retro games very, very late at night, early morning on Saturdays. And uh, you can find me online at bymatthewporter.com. Matthewfporter.com still works, but I decided to make things easy and consistent, so bymatthewporter.com will also get you there. And you can find the podcast itself at immproject.com. There you'll find all of our back episodes. You'll find a contact page where you can uh, get in touch with us. You'll find links to our Patreon. Really appreciate it if you um, are able to support us there and help us keep the podcast going. You'll also find a link to our our store if you like to shop for t-shirts, coffee mugs, all kinds of things you'll find there. And of course, there's always our Discord where you can hop on and be able to chat with us or our Twitter. We'd love to hear from you on any of these platforms. Send us your Land of the Lost headcanons and theories. And how many many cycles do you think the Marshalls have gone through? Yes, any any way you want to get in touch with us, we uh, are always uh, delighted to hear from you. So thank you again for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>